This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. You probably can tell I'm going to continue the series from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 on the qualifications for the overseer. You should have a handout. Does anyone not have a handout? Does anyone not have a handout? Uh, are there some extra handouts that we might pass that on? Good. So everyone has a handout. Um, I'm teaching a class on the exegesis of the Greek text of First Timothy, and we're actually going through this section in our class this morning. So I'm not sure if that uh, qualifies this to be the second blessing or not. <laughs> I, I take that as a not. Now, um, this is an interactive chapel, so you're free to ask questions, and I will pause as we go through the handout to give you an opportunity to do that. So anticipate that as we go through the uh, handout. And we are toward the end of the series. Um, I don't know what number this is, but the others, I understand, are... um, not online, what would we call that, in the catalog or in the seminary file, e-chapel file or something? Podcast feed. So if you're having trouble sleeping at night, uh, you know where to go. All right, the qualifications for a pastor, and as uh, Dr. Miller prayed, um, uh, we should be reading these qualifications and reflecting on them in terms of our own qualifications for the uh, high and holy calling of a shepherd of God's people. So I'm going to read the introduction again just to set the stage for the uh, discussion that follows. Let's pick it up then with number one. Paul writes to Timothy and the churches in Ephesus following his release from his first Roman imprisonment. Of course, Acts 28 documents his first Roman imprisonment. And 1 Timothy 6.21 documents the fact that Paul's letter to Timothy is also intended for the entire uh, church there because the you in that uh, benediction is a plural you, not a singular you, referring to Timothy only. Following his release, Paul had come to Ephesus to confront false teachers who had infiltrated the churches and to further ground the believers in in apostolic truth. So the occasion for Paul's ministry is the report he has heard about false teachers that are infiltrating the churches in Ephesus, and the purpose and reason for his coming there, as I say, is to confront the false teachers and to ground the, the believers further in apostolic truth. After a short visit... He left for Macedonia to provide critical help for the churches there, hoping to return shortly. Anticipating a delay, he writes to charge Timothy as his representative to continue to strengthen the churches and to counter the threat. So I understand that's the theme of 1 Timothy. It's Paul's charge to Timothy to strengthen the churches and to counter the threat of the false teachers. Three, a key issue Paul addresses is the qualifications for the office of pastor. Paul uses the term overseer, of course, in the local church. 
the threat of false teachers is real and pastors must be equipped to instruct and protect the congregation. As Paul's apostolic representative, Timothy was to ensure that those whom the churches were placing in the office were fully qualified. Although ordained, Timothy was not functioning as a pastor in Ephesus. He was functioning as Paul's apostolic representative. And I know the Titus 1.5 passages directs Titus to appoint elders, but even there it's my assumption that Paul means by that assist the churches in their appointing the elders. I don't think Timothy had the authority to appoint an elder. I understand that's the purview of the local church as we see in the New Testament and especially in the book of Acts. So, four, Paul begins in three one by describing both the desire for the office and something of the nature of the office. Paul uses the expression overseer to help us understand the nature of the office and he notes that it is a noble work. Then based on the nature of the office, Paul lays out the qualifications in verses 2 through 7 that are necessary for the office. And then finally, 5, he dis- his discussion of the qualifications can be conveniently divided into the following five categories. First, Paul begins with the general or overall qualification. We've looked at that in chapter 3, verse 2. Uh, number 2, then, character qualifications, the rest of verse 2 and then all of verse 3. Domestic or family qualifications, we actually looked at that last time. And then four, maturity qualifications, verse 6. And then five, finally, community qualifications, verse 7. I'm hoping actually to get to both of those this morning, but we'll see how it goes. So let's now turn to uh, chapter 3 and verse 6 and the uh, maturity qualifications that Paul identifies there. So that's page 11 of my handout. I believe that's what you have as well. So Paul begins in chapter 3, verse 6, addressing the qualifications in terms of the elders or the overseer's maturity. He says he must not be a recent convert. And again, I'm citing mostly from the ESV if you have a different translation. I say Paul transitions in this verse from domestic qualifications for the office to maturity qualifications. Furthermore, with this category, Paul lists only one qualification and puts it in the form of a prohibition. He must not be a recent convert. Found only here in the New Testament, the expression recent convert literally means freshly planted. Clearly, Paul uses it in a metaphorical sense of someone who is, a new, who is new in the faith that is, someone who is recently saved. The question this qualification raises is, when is a believer no longer considered a recent or new convert? Unfortunately, Paul does not answer this question. However, from the larger context, what this qualification is intended to prevent is someone attaining the office of an overseer who has not had the time and opportunity to grow and mature as a believer. We could put the qualification in the form of a positive command. The overseer must be a mature believer. The responsibilities of an overseer are extensive 
and very demanding. And spiritual maturity is both intuitive and essential for the office. Stated in this way, the overseer must be a mature believer. The church can more easily assess whether someone meets the qualification. According to what Paul and others say in the New Testament about Christian maturity, a mature believer is one whose life is characterized by walking in the light of God's Word and bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And as Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, uh, a number of those characteristics seem to match up with Paul's previous qualifications for the, for the office of an overseer or elder. So number six, well, I'll tell you what, for the sake of time, let's uh, go to the support on page 12. So not a new convert. I say here, <coughs> having stated the qualification, Paul turns to give two reasons to reinforce and support the qualification. The first reason an overseer or pastor is not to be a new or recent convert is that he may become puffed up with conceit. The expression puffed up with conceit is regularly used in the New Testament in a figurative or metaphorical sense to describe someone filled with vanity or pride. Obviously, any believer can fall into the sin of pride. However, however what Paul implies here is that a recent convert placed in a position of leadership within the church is particularly vulnerable and susceptible to this sin. Thus, overseers must be mature in the faith to avoid the danger less mature believers in leadership are susceptible to, namely sinful pride and arrogance. Three, the second reason why a pastor is not to be a new convert is parallel to the first, quote, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. If a recent convert in a leadership position is susceptible to pride, then he is also susceptible to condemnation as the consequence of pride. Number four, the combination fall into condemnation means to be placed under the sentence or verdict of God's judgment against sin and assign the penalty or punishment associated with that judgment. Paul further defines what this judgment involves with the phrase of the devil, a reference to Satan as the chief adversary of God. <coughs> Five, Paul's warning, quote, and he fall into, con into the condemnation of the devil, end quote, has been understood in one of two ways. Some take the warning as referring to the condemnation or judgment which the devil exacts. Paul's point in this case is that the devil will target a less mature overseer who is more vulnerable to spiritual attacks. Others take the warning as referring to the condemnation or judgment the devil himself receives from God. Paul's point in this case is that less mature overseers are more susceptible to temptation and sin and as such are more, are more vulnerable to judgment similar to that which the devil incurs. The second interpretation is preferred. Both Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 describe how the devil fell into condemnation and judgment because of pride. Furthermore, Paul develops the first interpretation in the following verse using different vocabulary. 7. In some, Paul prohibits a new convert from becoming an overseer 
because placing a new convert in a leadership position opens opens him up to the dangers of pride and condemnation. Pride is an insidious sin. It blinds us to our own sinfulness and depravity and robs God of the glory He richly deserves. As Solomon has written, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And that seems to reflect Paul's combination of fall into conceit and condemnation. But then I also add Proverbs 3.34, following the Septuagint, God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Eight. The question that remains is over the nature of this judgment. Is Paul talking about divine chastisement of a believer or the eternal judgment of an unbeliever? Paul's analogy with God's condemnation of the devil supports the sense of eternal judgment. However, the fact that the new convert is, well, after all, a convert, supports the sense of divine chastisement of a believer. So here's my attempt at a solution. Perhaps it is the case where the individual in this situation is disciplined by God. If he repents, he gives evidence that he is a true believer. If he does not repent, he gives evidence that he was never saved to begin with. So I'm going to pause it here. I do reference the Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 as describing in those verses the devil and the devil's fall because of pride. I know those two passages are debated whether or not they're talking about the devil. Uh, if you have any reservations, I have a handout. I'll be happy to <laughs> let you read, but not at this time. So any thoughts about the prohibition against an overseer being a new convert. Any questions? Dr. Miller. Just a, just a comment there. I found such some very significant passages in the Old Testament, including one of Daniel, Right. 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 Paul actually develops that in chapter five, uh, that very point, I believe, when he says, "Don't lay hands suddenly on someone. Let them have time to show themselves to be a true convert." and have the qualifications commensurate with the office itself. Good. Thank you. Any other thoughts? Uh, Some have suggested, because Titus doesn't mention this particular requirement, that the circumstances may dictate that this is not a requirement uh, for all circumstances. And the thought would be, Timothy is in Ephesus. The church has been in existence for at least 10 years, if not more. And therefore, those who have been converted under uh, Paul's ministry and the ministry of others would have had 
opportunity to mature in the faith, and there would be a pool of mature Christian uh, men who would uh, therefore qualify, and therefore Paul says, not a new convert. And the argument then is, well, Titus is in Crete, and that church has just recently been established. There wouldn't necessarily have had been the time uh, period allowed for those who have been converted to have opportunity to grow and to mature, and therefore Paul leaves out this requirement when writing to Titus. And my my thought is that this um, this requirement, this qualification, is so intuitive that I'm just assuming, although Paul doesn't mention it in Titus, it's uh, it's somewhat in between the lines. It's just a an obvious and intuitive qualification. You don't want to put someone... If, if the dangers Paul spells out here are true, and they are, you don't want to put someone in a position who is new in the faith, has not had time to mature, and therefore is susceptible and vulnerable to these dangers. Uh, that would not do that individual any good, and it would not serve the church well. So, I'm going to go on if there are no questions. Let's go on then. Verse 7, community qualifications. Paul concludes his list of qualifications for overseers by identifying the kind of report the overseer must have among unbelievers. The conjunction and marks this qualification as parallel and in addition to the previous qualifications. Furthermore, as he has done throughout, Paul states his qualification in the form of a command. He must have a good reputation. As with the previous qualifications, this too is a requirement for the office. The expression reputation refers to the overseer's testimony or standing before others based on his character and conduct. The term good identifies the kind of reputation the overseer must have. In this case, the term refers to that which meets a high moral standard, hence that which is morally praiseworthy or noble. Finally, the phrase with those outside identifies those who are able to bear witness to the overseer's reputation. In the present context, the phrase refers to unbelievers as those who are outside the membership of the church. What Paul means by this is that whatever dealings an overseer has with unbelievers, his character and conduct must be morally upright so as to earn the respect of those with whom he deals. In some, Paul's initial qualification in verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach. And Paul's final qualification here, an overseer must have a good reputation, represent parallel bookends that identify the overall qualifications for overseers. As such, the initial qualification refers to the kind of testimony an overseer must have within the local church. And the final qualification here refers to the kind of reputation an overseer must have with those outside the local church. Paul concludes the verse by giving two reasons that reinforce and support this last qualification. Both reasons identify dangers that are to be avoided in the overseer's relationship with unbelievers. The first danger to be avoided is, quote, so that he will not fall into reproach. As in 3.6, the expression, he will not fall, is used metaphorically and means to experience a loss of status. 
The phrase into reproach identifies the loss the overseer avoids by his fulfilling the qualification. The term reproach refers to any activity which results in others reviling or insulting someone. Paul's point is that if an overseer does not have a good reputation with unbelievers, he brings reproach upon himself, the church, and the gospel. The second danger an overseer is to avoid with his qualification expands on the first, quote, and so that he will not fall into the snare of the devil. The term snare is used metaphorically and refers to that which causes someone suddenly to be endangered or to be brought unexpectedly under control of an opponent or enemy, hence to entrap. The expression the devil identifies the one who ensnares. And as in the previous verse, the expression refers to Satan as the chief adversary of God and the slanderer of God's people. As can be seen, the overseer's failure to maintain a good reputation in his relationship with unbelievers is the snare the devil uses, and reproach and disgrace are the consequences. Uh, A parallel passage. Um, We're going to skip the parallel passage. Six, as mentioned earlier, Paul provides the list of qualifications to assist the churches in selecting qualified men as overseers and to equip Timothy in his task of helping the churches in their selection. The two questions fielded earlier need to be raised here. The first is whether these qualifications address the overseer's life before conversion or only after conversion. The impression from the list, (coughs) not a recent convert, not addicted to wine, not quarrelsome, is that these qualifications apply following conversion, not before. And I would, if there's any kind of pushback on that, I would simply point to Paul's uh, description of his of an of his own life prior to conversion and uh, how that didn't at all prevent him from uh, being called to the office of an apostle and if Paul can have that kind of history prior to his conversion including I, I understand handing over believers to be slain uh, if Paul can have that kind of life prior to conversion and not have it disqualify him for being called to the office of apostle, I'm assuming that uh, those called to the office of overseer are not prohibited from uh, assuming that office if they have a similar life prior to conversion. That would be my argument. I hope you followed that. Eight, the second question related to the first is whether overseers who fail in one or more of these qualifications can be restored. As stated earlier, the answer is a qualified yes. And again, I would, in this case, cross-reference Peter's failure after his conversion and his being restored. Having said that, the ultimate issue is whether an overseer who has failed in one or more of these qualifications can regain a testimony that is above reproach. Nine, finally, to what degree must one desiring the office of an overseer have these qualifications? From the previous discussion, the answer is that he must have these qualifications to the degree that others are able to recognize these qualifications in him and the church is able to ordain him 
to the office. In short, the overseer must have a life that is characterized by these qualifications. And again, Paul puts these in the form of a command. So they're not simply good suggestions or something of a nice ideal. They are requirements for all those who aspire to the office. And therefore, I I see their application directly to my life, and I assume you see them directly to your life as well. Let me pause it here. I've covered a couple of um, debated issues. I'll see if you have any questions. Or if not, we're going to be let out a bit early this morning. Yes, Damien? Reproachful. Well, I did mention it's the condemnation of the devil. And so that seems to associate this condemnation with more in the terms of a judgment. And the judgment the devil receives is that of God. So I don't know if we can draw the parallel then. With, you're talking about verse 7, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I would want to draw a parallel between verse 7 and verse 6. And in terms of what does the condemnation represent? Is it simply that he's been reproached or is it something more than that? Since it's a reproach of the devil, that which the devil in, incurs, it's, I think it's something more than that. Does that answer your question? All right. Satisfactorily? Or do you have a, do you have a follow-up? Okay. You get, you get two. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. You get two questions. All right. Anyone else? Right. Right. It hasn't always been that way. Well, I have two answers to that question. If you're asking me personally, I would be more spring-loaded to the position, let's take our time and see what the longer-lasting fruit of his repentance is. So I, I would be spring-loaded to let's wait. But I guess, in a sense, the bottom line is if that individual is seeking the position of an overseer of a, of a particular local church, the bottom line is that it, will that local church call him to be their pastor? Has he satisfied whatever measure of repentance and the fruit of it that they are wanting to see? Does that, does that make sense? Please. Please, yeah. No, I, yeah, that's Yeah, I was I was messing with my brother over there. If you just don't follow up, if you if there's anything going on with that church which qualifies that person, is there any kind of sin, violation 
All right. And your second follow-up? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm messing with you. Well, let me stop with you first. I was actually hoping to avoid that question. Um, and and the often the, the, the one qualification that's regularly raised uh, to, ad- to address this particular issue is a divorce uh, matter. Can someone who has been divorced uh, be reclaimed and hold the office of, a over, of an overseer? And uh, the, again, the, the, the question is, can somebody who has gone through that experience, been unfaithful to his wife, um, something like that, uh, can, can that individual regain the uh, qualification of being above reproach? And, I, and I'm still kind of working through that in my own mind. I'd like to think he can. If uh, Peter can be re- reconciled having denied the Lord three times, if Peter can be reconciled having given, in, uh, according to Paul's remarks in chapter 2 of Galatians, um, citing with a legalistic um, approach to the gospel or to justification, uh, I'm, I'd like to think that somebody who has had a falling in that particular area could be restored. But, again, uh, the question in my mind, can that individual ever be restored to being above reproach? And, again, the bottom line would be, is, is that local church viewing him as such? Does that answer the question? Okay. Right. What what responsibility do you think the church as a Christian has over such heavenly-minded Christians who just come in? Autonomous. And what what should be their relationship to the church? Uh, you know, that was the second question I was hoping to avoid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that the first church should uh, make information available if the second church is inquiring um, if the second church is not inquiring perhaps that pastor of the first church could go to the pastor the, or the leadership or whatever of the second church I, I suppose they don't have a pastor they're seeking or they're thinking about this individual to be their pastor and just say are, are you aware of the issues why we um, had to ask him to step down I know there's there's questions about confidentiality you have to be very careful about but other than just simply providing information I don't know if there's anything else that that first church uh, can do or should do do you have you have a follow up on that (laughs) seriously do you have some thoughts on that yourself okay okay I saw a hand back here yes Rob Right. 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 
So what? Right. Well, that's a that's a very difficult issue, as you very clearly point out. Um, I would hope that a pastor would have a support group of leadership, um, men in leadership, that he could confide in and seek their counsel. Uh, I think part of the qualifications we discussed earlier is that a pastor is to value the wisdom of the mature individuals in his church and seek their counsel in confronting difficult situations. And so I would... I would hope that that individual, that pastor, would draw upon that leadership uh, cadre and have that kind of relationship where they would feel free to talk to him about these things and he would desire their input on uh, a regular, at some point, uh, ongoing evaluation. Does that make sense, Rob? And that's what, is that what your question was addressing? Yeah, I, I would hope pastors would want to do that, because your your point is very well taken. Um, as a, as a, as the pastor of the church, they're in a sense um, not in a position where they are going to be evaluated on a regular basis or even on a periodic basis. So that, that's a good good point. Somebody else over here? I saw a hand over here. Yep, Adam. Well, I think your question um, is addressing my last point in my handout. Um, I, I say here uh, that the overseer must have a life that is characterized by these qualifications. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of how I could make a parallel. Um, John, First John says, those who are born again practice righteousness. So how do we know if we're born again? Well, we practice righteousness. And that would be in contrast to practicing unrighteousness. So by saying that the overseer must have a life characterized by these qualifications, um, he can have a momentary slip or stumble or whatever. Maybe lose his temper. But... His life is not characterized by that. It's characterized by temperance or whatever. And so I, I, try, to, I try to make something concrete that's obviously somewhat subjective and abstract. So is the life of the individual characterized by these qualifications? Um, and I, I mentioned here, does a local church recognize those such that they want to call him to that office. Um, I'm not sure I, I can go beyond that, Adam, and I'm, I'm not sure I answered your question well. Do you have a follow-up? Yeah. Yeah. 
So, I mean, if, if John is saying, I want you to have assurance, and you can gain assurance if you're walking in the light, if you're practicing righteousness, etc., etc., well, there must be an, object of, an objective way of, of, of um, evaluating that, or else John's desire to give us assurance falls short. Do you follow my point? So, I would say, you know, my life is characterized by obedience, not disobedience. Righteousness, not unrighteousness. Characterized. Overall characterized. That's how I'd probably argue. Yes. Qualifications. Right. I think you're picking up, I think, what Adam was saying here. Um, the qualifications are somewhat somewhat subjective and somewhat abstract, but uh, the fact that one church says you're qualified and another church says you're not probably reinforces the fact that it's uh, not a hard and fast science. And um, at that point, you simply have to say, well, the churches disagree as to the qualifications of this individual. If the one church wants to call him, fine. If the other church says he's not qualified, that's fine as well. Sorry, I can't go beyond that. Yeah. All right. Yeah, Julie. One more question. We've got to, then we'll cut it off. Well, I'll give you the answer that my uh, colleague, Dr. Combs, would give in answer to that question. He would pause and say, well, how old am I? That's <laughs> um, that's a tough thing, isn't it? I mean, one of the things that Paul encourages Timothy about is don't let others look down upon your youthfulness. And the solution to that is be an example to them of all these godly traits. So there, there, there is no... Well, Timothy, you're above that age. Don't worry about it. Um, it's tough to say, well, you have to have a minimum age requirement. So it's a matter of how, when, when was that individual converted and how long has he had opportunity to grow and mature and what are others saying about him in the church and outside the church? Does that help? Okay. Well, I think we're out of time. And uh, that brings to a conclusion my series on the qualifications of a pastor. And I'm glad you were part of it this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we marvel at your grace in saving us. We are sinners saved by grace. We have not merited the least of your gifts. We have not deserved any of your favor. And yet you you have not withheld any good thing from us. You have day in and day out poured out upon us every good and perfect gift. 
And above all these things, you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And Father, grace upon grace, that you would allow us to be placed in the ministry. It humbles us. It, it reminds us, Father, how dependent we are upon you and what a gracious God you are. I pray that we would regularly go to this passage and read these qualifications in anticipation of the Spirit of God uh, working uh, sanctification in our lives, convicting us, Father, wherever we would see ourselves starting to slip or to fall short, and strengthening us, Father, in in those virtues that are necessary for serving you in vocational ministry. It's a tremendous privilege, and we want to do it in a way that pleases you and brings you honor and glory. And we ask for grace for that. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.